It's Friday, October 7th, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, what the heck is a flying purple people eater? And why did the song about one stick around for so long? Plus, remember the ice bucket challenge? Eight years later, we've got to look at just how big a difference it made. But is the new ALS treatment the challenge helped fund as great as it seems? Here's some cool stuff for your ride home. This morning, I was working on a playlist I've been curating of vintage Halloween music when I stumbled on a popular song that I miraculously haven't heard in many years. And it's one that I heard so much at every childhood Halloween event that, honestly, I probably could have gone the rest of my life without hearing it again. But emerging as it did from some far-off ether of my memory, I decided to hit play, and as I listened, I began to wonder... Where the heck did this song come from? What does it even mean? The song, Sheb Woolley's 1958's The Purple People Eater. You surely know it. The chorus roughly goes, It was a one-eyed, one-horned, flying purple people eater. And throughout the rest of the song, we find out that this people-eating creature descended from out of the sky, claims to eat purple people, but refuses to eat the singer because he's too tough. He wants to be a rock and roller and plays music from the horn in his head, which eventually does make him a successful enough artist that the singer later sees this monster performing on TV. I can't help making comparisons to Avril Lavigne's seminal classic Skater Boy, in which a similarly misunderstood character makes his musical ambitions known early in the song, only to be discovered performing live on TV by the protagonist of the song many years later. The songwriter and original singer of The Purple People Eater, Sheb Woolley, was a musician and actor, primarily known for his work in Western films and the TV show Rawhide. He recorded a number of country music hits under the name Ben Calder, and is actually credited as the voice behind the Wilhelm Scream, that classic stock sound effect, and another piece of audio history I've been meaning to do a segment on forever. Anyways, back in the late 50s, when Wooly was just beginning his role of Pete Nolan on Rawhide, he met up with his pal Don Robertson. Robertson was a prolific songwriter, writing songs for many of the popular performing artists of the day, including over a dozen for Elvis Presley. According to novelty music expert David Buck over at Tedium, the story goes that Wooly and Robertson were hanging out when Robertson shared a joke that he'd heard from his son, who in turn may have heard it from another friend at school. The joke went, What has one eye, flies, has a horn, and eats people? The answer? A one-eyed, one-horned, flying people-eater. Classic elementary school joke. Pretty clever bait-and-switch. No clue where the purple came into play here, but more on that confusion in a moment. After hearing the joke, Wooly thought it might make a pretty good song. He tried to get Robertson to write it with him, but Robertson turned him down, even though both of them found the joke absolutely hilarious because it was so bad. Wooly carried on, though, jotting out the song lyrics in a matter of minutes and later calling it undoubtedly the worst song he had ever written. 
Despite that, he still thought there might be something to it. As he told the Associated Press about the theme of the song in 1982, quote, The space age was upon us. Everyone was thinking about rockets and wondering if maybe we would find people up there. End quote. And quoting from the Billboard book of number one hits, Shortly after Wooly wrote the song, he had a meeting with the president of his record label, MGM, at the Beverly Hills Hotel. After singing all his ballads, Sheb was asked what else he had. He said he had a song that was the bottom of the barrel and proceeded to sing The Purple People Eater. Within three weeks of its release, it was the number one song in America. End quote. Yes, number one Billboard song in America. 1958 was a weird year for number one songs. Witch Doctor by David Seville, Yakety Yak by The Coasters, and The Chipmunk Song all hit number one that year. Other big hits like The Royal Teens' Short Shorts and The Champs' Tequila, as well as Little Richard's earlier Tutti Frutti, all also get mentions within the lyrics of Purple People Eater. Purple People Eater, in particular, was such an instant hit that Tedium cites it as selling 3 million copies around its initial release, and other record companies trying to cash in put out response tracks, like Joe South's The Purple People Eater Meets The Witch Doctor. But back to the original recording. Most of the folks in the room at the Beverly Hills Hotel when he first played it for MGM did not like the song. But apparently, the president of MGM's record division loved it, and since he was president, what he said was law, so the song got made. And making it was a little interesting. The voice of the monster, you know, the high-pitched one that says lines like, I like short shorts, was recorded using a similar technique to two of the other big novelty songs that year, Witch Doctor and The Chipmunk Song. Basically, Wooly recorded his own voice at a reduced speed and then played it back at a higher speed. He did the same thing for the creature's saxophone solo towards the end of the song. And Bucket Tedium says that this fad of sped-up vocals might have been part of what led to the song's success. It's weird today to think of that being something people would have clung onto as cool and worthy of listening to over and over again, but I guess I can kind of see how it could have been seen then as refreshingly different, a cool technical trick, or just generally bucking against the music norms of your parents. Case in point, even after the song was recorded, some accounts say MGM Records didn't want to release it, but a recording of the song landed in the label's New York office, where it became popular with the younger office workers, who would gather around in a group of up to 50 people to listen to the song at lunchtime. Picking up on the popularity with the youths, the label decided to give the song a shot and release it anyways. They didn't originally want to invest in promoting it, though. That is, until Wooly's schedule with Rawhide made it clear that he wouldn't be able to promote it personally, so the record company would have to step in. And Buck notes that even without Wooly promoting it personally, the song spent six weeks at number one and spawned merchandise like hats with horns on them, figurines, t-shirts, and even a type of ice cream. Wooly himself would go on to record a Christmas version called Santa Claus Meets the Purple People Eater which really just feels like the same song, but with jingle bells in the background and the addition of Santa to the story. In keeping with Wooly's point about enthusiasm for the space age, the song does begin with Santa and his reindeer flying across the Milky Way and almost getting hit by Sputnik. 
Luckily, the Purple People Eater was nearby to manhandle the satellite and hurl it across the galaxy. It's actually a pretty funny song, and personally, I think it might be up there with the 1968 Snoopy's Christmas song by the Royal Guardsmen, in which Snoopy is pulled behind enemy lines in World War I by the Red Baron, and rather than being killed, is treated to a Christmas toast. Mid-century novelty holiday music is something else. But back to the purple people eater. Here's a crucial question. Is the creature himself purple, or does he only eat purple people? In other words, are all of us people who are not purple safe from this friendly little people eater? The creature himself says in the song that he likes eating specifically purple people. Yet nonetheless, every depiction of the creature over the years has made him purple as well. Which, I mean, I guess it's possible for both to be true. And speaking of depictions, I could have sworn that Disney had put out a purple people eater cartoon at some point, but I think that old Disney TV pop and rock compilation series did me dirty once again. Looks like I was imagining some combination of several Disney creature villains and painting them purple in my head. But what does actually exist is a 1988 live-action kids movie that was one of several films at the time obviously trying to cash in on the 12-year-old boy befriending an alien trend that E.T. launched. Buck at Tedium astutely describes this movie as having general Mac and me energy. The general plot of Purple People Eater is that a young boy, played by a pre-Doogie Hauser Neil Patrick Harris, is spending the summer with his grandfather, played by Ned Beatty, when he accidentally summons the Purple People Eater while listening to his grandpa's old records. The Purple People Eater, which looks like a kind of knockoff grimace, helps Neil Patrick Harris's character become a better musician, and they quickly form a band to put on a benefit concert in order to stop his grandpa and his platonic roommate, played by Shelley Winters, from being evicted by their evil landlord, Mr. Noodle. The movie also stars Chubby Checkers as himself, Thora Birch in her first ever film role, a pre-Saved by the Bell Dustin Diamond, and Little Richard as the town mayor who saves the day. Sheb Woolley himself even makes a cameo as Harvey Skidder, a trapeze instructor. Why is there a trapeze instructor in the film? I have no idea. I'm not sure watching the whole movie would even clear that up for me. It's one of those kinds of kid movies. A contemporary review of the film in the LA Times that Buck dug up pretty much hits the nail on the head, writing, quote, You'd have to be a Scrooge to trash a picture that tries to instill in children the importance of imagination, determination, and appreciation of the elderly. At the same time, Purple People Eater can't safely be recommended to anyone over the age of seven. End quote. Yeah, pretty much. Even the handful of clips that I watched was probably more than enough for me. More recently, there was apparently a quick allusion to the song in Jordan Peele's Nope, but beyond that, no recent adaptations. And, you know, I do kind of feel like something cool and creative could be done with it nowadays, whether it's aimed at kids or is more of a gritty horror take. I don't know. It does kind of seem like the song is finally fading from popularity after six decades of ubiquity this time of year, though. For my entire childhood, it seemed like adults couldn't figure out any other songs to put on a Halloween mixtape than Purple People Eater and The Monster Mash, which worked out well for Shevouli and his descendants. 
But it was kind of puzzling, considering just how many other Halloween-themed songs came out in the middle decades of the 20th century, from artists like Ella Fitzgerald, Louis Armstrong, The Cordettes, Bing Crosby, Glenn Miller, Doris Day, Tommy Dorsey, Cab Calloway, and so many more. I'll put a link to some of those in the show notes if you want to listen. Personally, I'd say some of those tracks veer into the novelty genre, with wacky sound effects and character singing, but I guess there was some magic to Purple People Eater that, after its initial burst of general popularity, clung on as a mainstay in children's music for generations to come. The sped-up music, the sing-along-style lyrics, the completely original and slightly confusing monster at the heart of it. Which, honestly, considering how many older songs have varying levels of problematic origins we're more aware of these days, that in itself is a refreshing element of this song. There is absolutely no deeper meaning to the Purple People Eater. It started as a so-bad-it-was-funny schoolyard joke, and even after six weeks at the top of the Billboard charts and decades of covers, it never tried to be anything more than that. Did you pour a bucket of ice water over your head eight years ago? One of the mid-2010s internet challenges that spread the furthest, let's not talk about Coney 2012, the Ice Bucket Challenge, unlike many challenges and trends these days, actually had a good cause behind it. In addition to subjecting yourself to being plunged in ice-cold water, you were supposed to post the video of that publicly online, tag three friends to do the same, and ideally, you would all also talk about ALS and donate to the ALS Association or another nonprofit serving the needs of people with the neurodegenerative disease. It was a global trend that saw participants ranging from everyday people to professional athletes, YouTubers, actors, and politicians. A few notable ones that I recall were Matt Damon, who used toilet water in his ice bucket because, as spokesperson at the time for Water.org, he couldn't be seen adding to the critiques of how the ice bucket challenge was wasting water. There was also Bill Gates, who was nominated by Mark Zuckerberg, who built an over-the-top bucket dunking station for his video. And apparently, Vin Diesel, Seth Meyers, and David Lynch all nominated Vladimir Putin to do the challenge as well, though he never did. Uh, particularly as someone who was working as the social media manager for a nonprofit that largely worked in digital activism at the time, I remember a lot about the discourse surrounding the Ice Bucket Challenge. Lots of people thought it was stupid, they criticized the fact that most people probably weren't donating at all, they held it up as one of the prime examples of the day of clicktivism, or armchair activism. You know, people could look and feel like they were doing a good thing, when really, at most, they were probably just donating a few bucks to a nonprofit, not making any real, lasting change. Well, eight years later, we've got some hard facts on just what an impact the Ice Bucket Challenge had. Started by Pat Quinn and Pete Freitz, who have both since passed away from the disease, the Ice Bucket Challenge ultimately raised over $220 million for various ALS-focused organizations around the world. The ALS Association, on its own, to which most Americans donated, earned over $115 million, and in a recent press release, they credit the influx of those donations for their ability to invest in the research and development of a new treatment for ALS that was just approved by the FDA. 
The new drug, called AMX0035, or Relivrio, was approved for consumer treatment following successful completion of its Phase 3 trials at the end of last month. This is incredible news, and one of a few developments over the years that prove the real impact the challenge had. ALS, despite being such a horrible and fatal disease with next to no effective treatment options, is relatively rare and therefore, historically, wasn't often made a priority in research funding, hence the big movement to raise awareness and drum up funds with the challenge. But some scientists are cautioning that this new drug may have been approved too quickly. Unlike typical FDA drug approval processes, which typically require either two small independent studies or one big one, Relivrio underwent just one small study of only 167 patients. Quoting Futurism, The FDA said in its vote to approve Relivrio that it was important to get it out quickly rather than wait until the projected end date of another study in 2024. Given the serious and life-threatening nature of ALS and the substantial unmet need, the agency wrote in a benefits risk assessment, this level of uncertainty is acceptable in this instance. End quote. I should note that the small study indicated the drug can extend patients' lives by five to six months by slowing down progression of the disease, and that it will cost $158,000, though the pharmaceutical company behind it is working with health insurance companies to bring that down. If anything, that this drug is so expensive only provides mere months and is skipping some of the usual testing protocol only further proves how horrific ALS is and how desperate people with it and their loved ones are for any kind of treatment. As Kalanit Balas, president and CEO of the ALS Association, told NPR, quote, six months can be someone attending their daughter's graduation, a wedding, the birth of a child. These are really big, monumental things that many people want to make sure they're around to see and be a part of, end quote. A larger study of the drug is currently underway, and the founders of the pharmaceutical company say they will voluntarily take Relivrio off the market if that trial is unsuccessful. The founders of the company also say that the high price of the drug is to help them continue developing further treatments for ALS and maybe, one day, a cure. Now, eight years later, we're not as close to a cure as anyone would like us to be. But as criticism around this new treatment's fast-tracking reminds us, these things do really take time. And it's at least reassuring to, every now and then, get to see the huge work being done with donations anytime one particular cause or organization gets pushed into the spotlight. Yeah, there is a lot that we can critique about 2014, and even of certain aspects of the Ice Bucket Challenge specifically, as it spread around the internet in not always genuine ways. But knowing that countless people around the world came together to raise hundreds of millions of dollars for a disease that many of them had never before heard of, and that that money would still be making a difference in the real lives of ALS patients almost a decade later, that's the kind of thing that gives me hope. Well, that is going to be it from me for this week. This show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird, and I'll talk to you again on Monday.